So I'll start with just reading the scripture because I, I think that that'd be helpful. We're in a series in Mark at the moment. Um, I think you guys did Mark chapter 12 last week. And so Paul asked me to preach on Mark chapter 13 and 14, um, which is a bunch of like apocalyptic stuff and then straight into like the Last Supper and Passover. And you could spend about a year just in Mark chapter 13 and 14. Um, so we're just going to do 25 minutes um, on the whole thing. So let's go. No, I'm kidding. Just Mark chapter 14, verse 3 to 9, where it says this, While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon, talking about Jesus, Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard. And she broke open the jar and pointed the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was this ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. You always have the poor with you and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand, before its burial. For truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. This is the word of the Lord. God. We should do that more at church. That. Um, sorry, just debriefing with uh, Paul, our church services. Early. Yeah, early. early debrief. Yeah, early debrief. That's great. Um, okay, I'm so honored to be here today. Um, and I just want to, for a moment, just take a, just, just recognize and honor Trinity for a second. Uh, there aren't a lot of Bible colleges around the world that pastors like, are unequivocally saying, hey, we would love to send our people to this Bible college to be formed, to be shaped, to learn. And Trinity, for me, is something I'm deeply passionate and excited about. Number one, because it wasn't around when I was young, um, in the state or, or the shape that it is now. But number two, I'm so thankful, in quite honestly, a denomination that's in decline, that we have a Bible college that I'm seeing on the incline in, in training and shaping our people in the ways of God and the Word of God. Um, and I would be honored to study here. Um, I'm so thankful that we have a great institution. I feel kind of weird preaching today because I preach in front of like guys like Paul and John and Simon and others who I think could do a much better job than I could. And I also, Paul invited me to speak to the preaching class a little while ago. Um, and I taught them all about how to write a good sermon. And then now I have to preach and prove that I don't know what I'm talking about whatsoever. Um, so before we, that, that's kind of where it is. Hey, before I, before I start, I know Simon's prayed. I just love to just settle my heart just a little before I, I start. So I'm going to pray real fast one last time. You join me. Father, I'm so thankful to be here. May we be more aware of you than we are of me. Less of me and more of you right now, Lord God, I pray. Amen. Amen. I'm not sure if many of you are on Instagram at the moment or if social media is something that you occupy um, or, you know, you might be on TikTok or Snapchat or whatever that is. If you don't know what TikTok is, that's a good thing. Don't go find out. You'll lose about three to four hours of your life like that. But Instagram is one of the most dominant forms of social media today. And recently, about maybe April, May, a phenomenon happened on Instagram known as Preacher's and sneakers. Does anyone know what I'm talking about when I talk about preachers and sneakers? If you don't know, it looked a little something like this. There was a guy in America who loved shoes, just loved shoes. In fact, it was, it was started um, quite disingenuously. Like Just because he loved shoes, he was a Christian, and he loved preachers. So what he started to do was take a picture of a preacher, the shoes that he was wearing, he went on to something which you can now trade shoes, like a stock market, so they go up and down in value. If you, if you don't know, you can buy shoes and then like they increase. And he goes to stock X and he, um, and he, and he posts 
what they actually were worth when the preacher was wearing them. And so these mega church pastors are getting called out on Instagram for the shoes that they're wearing. And why is it so easy to do? Because mega church pastors post prolifically of themselves preaching, right? So all you have to do is go to their website, their profile, take a picture, and then just did the analysis and posted it. And it was bizarre what happened. In a day, he went from zero to 100,000 followers. Like, it skyrocketed, so much so that he had to, like, take a step back for mental health issues. He started to get preachers who would never even have spoken to him, like meeting him in airports, questioning him, challenging him. Because what happened is the world started to go, those aren't just Nikes. Those are thousands of dollars that this preacher is preaching in right now as he's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was a really bizarre moment. Now, the interesting thing is that most non-Christians didn't really go too hard but the people who were the harshest on the Christians, on the preachers, were Christians. And if you go to preachers and sneakers, you can look at it. You can look at the comments and all this stuff. It's quite bizarre. But one of the most prevailing comments that came out of this moment was Christians who would post this. Imagine how many people he could have fed for the cost of his shoes. And it was like this, it was this really powerful thing where like preachers were then like, oh, you know, justifying themselves, saying, oh, no, no, I feed the poor this much every single week. And, and, you know, this is how I justify my budget or these guys were a gift or whatever. And it was like this moment that we saw for, for just the world started to catch up, started to actually question, does excess in the Christian faith mean success in the Christian faith? Now, I don't think we've actually landed on it at all. These preachers are still wearing these sneakers. And for me today, I actually love shoes. I'm someone who has a terrible shoe. Paul just looked at my shoes. Uh, I'm someone who has a terrible shoe game, but wish I had a good shoe game. The reason why I don't is because I'm trying to rein in my fleshful desires, not because I think that shoes aren't great, but because I recognize where it goes wrong. But why was the world so shocked at what happened here? What happened in this moment? And I think it's because deep down, the world knows this subconscious desire that our life and our effort flows effortlessly towards that which we worship and love. Our money, our time, our passive imagination flows effortlessly towards that which we secretly worship and love. And there was this beautiful dichotomy of a preacher speaking on generosity and wearing thousands of dollars on their feet. I don't want to make a comment on that so much because I think it's, it's neither here nor there. I do think preachers and pastors and leaders need to be held doubly accountable for how they're going. But what they're rejecting in this moment is that Christianity, which celebrates material excess as a sign of success, is not a Christianity that they want to adopt. Now, I think preachers at Sneakers got onto something. But what actually really kind of struck my imagination was when I was actually reading Mark chapter 13 and 14 and the disciples in response to this woman's adoration and love of Christ said something similar. They go, wow, imagine how many people could have been fed if she had spent the money elsewhere. It's a good question. What's the difference? What's the difference between what she was doing and perhaps the criticism that these preachers are facing at the moment. And you guys, we're all being shaped right now. We're all being formed. Some of you are candidating. Some of you are hoping pastors, maybe leaders in the marketplace. They're well formed by theology and by the grace and goodness of God. But it's a really good question to ask. What is the difference between these two scenarios? And I think for me, the difference is the object, intent, and motivation behind the action of worship. The, the motivation, intent, behind the action of worship. And so I just want to talk just briefly about how this woman teaches us three things about what worship looks like. Now, 
you've probably preached on worship. You've probably talked about worship before in college. And so when I say, what is worship? You're going to come up with a better, more theological, probably well-footnoted answer than I could give you right now. But if I was going to tell you what, what, what worship was for me, I'd say it's, it's the outward expression. It's, it's this physical activity at times. It's the motivation of my heart to express what secretly my heart loves and adores. Not just on a church service on Sundays, but it's an all-of-life activity. Worship's not just a song led by John. Worship is a disposition. It's a habit. It's a way of living for the Christian. And we would actually argue that everybody worships something. There's a great book um, written by a guy named James K.A. Smith. It's available upstairs in Trinity. And I'd suggest writing it. It's one of the most pivotal books for me um, in the last couple of years. It's called You Are What You Love. And he argues that actually we become that which we love because we worship what we love And worship is the habits that we inhabit every single day of our life. He he, he makes this great quote. He says, worship works from the top down. You might say in worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. We are all inhabiting a narrative. We are all existing in a story. We are all currently living out something that is speaking a message and a story with our lives. The question is, is are we living a story which is pointing to being shaped by worship of God? And that's more than just knowing how to sing. It's more than just knowing how to rock up to a service. It's a disposition of our whole lives. If we are what we love and we love what we worship, then there is no bigger answer that we could answer today than maybe say, hey, what are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? There are three things I think that we can really identify in what, in what I learned from this story, just as I'm unpacking it. I think there are many angles, like a multifaceted diamond that you could take this story from, but three ideas about worship that I think are going to help us today unpack what's happening in this moment. And the first one is this, is that we worship, ultimately, as I've said, what we love. We worship what we love. Worship is a manifestation of our heart's deepest desires. You know, for me, the reason why preacher at sneakers is such a controversial topic is, as I said, I really, really love shoes. Not just shoes, I also love fashion. I know you might be looking at me being like, do you really love fashion, Michael? I don't know. <laughs> a couple of years ago, when I read um, You Are What You Love, I felt deeply challenged by the Holy Spirit. Because you see, uh, just to be vulnerable for a moment, uh, I, uh, I love fashion that much. A lot of my passive energy goes into fashion. So, like, you might be wondering what that looks like. It looks like I have Pinterest on my phone. I'm on ASOS, you know, if I'm, you know, spending some time. If you don't know what ASOS is, it's a clothing company. Um, I, I really enjoy going into shoe shops and looking at shoes more than even my wife does. Not to be gender stereotypical, she also loves shoes as well. And, in fact, I realized it became unhealthy when I started to meet people. And the first thing I did wasn't look at their eyes or their clothes. I would look at their feet. I, and you're like, have you looked at my feet today? Yes, I have. Like I can, you can just tell a lot about people by what they wear on their feet um, and, and how they value and that kind of thing. And it's, you start to recognize this became kind of unhealthy for me. And so much so that I felt good if I was wearing cool clothes. I felt good if I had good shoes on my feet. It seemed to me like God was happy. or It just started to get really weird in my mind. 
And so God, for a season, just said to me, hey, I think you need to, you need to retrain your heart here. So I had to take a step back. So for a year, I went um, without buying clothes at all. I didn't even buy them from an op shop. My wife felt sorry for me. She bought me shorts halfway through the year in winter. Made no sense whatsoever. Um, and some of you are like, hey, that's, that's not weird, Michael. I haven't bought clothes in like five years. We know. Um, and, and <laughs> Paul's point. Yeah, moving right along, Paul. And what, what was it? It's because there was this sense that um, actually I was starting to be shaped what I loved. I was starting to be shaped by what I love. Now, here's the question. In this moment, when they're sitting in the Passover and, and the disciples are gathered and this woman interrupts the whole proceeding, is there any question about who she loves? Is there any question about the desire of her heart? Yes, this is an exorbitant amount of money. It's, it's said that the money she spent is 300 days wages. This is crazy. Now, for this bit of context, a lot of people think this story here is a lot similar, even exactly the same as John chapter 12, which is a story about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, where Mary pours anointing oil on Jesus in almost thanks and worship for raising Lazarus from the dead. And I'm not quite sure that they are the exact same story, but they definitely hold the similar themes. They probably point maybe to the exact same story, just told differently by Mark and John. But I don't think we should be too quick to bring John chapter 12 into Mark because Mark in standing alone offers us deep, rich and truth and beauty that I think we can garner from this, that there is a moment when she chooses to say to the world, hey, this is what my heart loves. This is what my heart desires. This is what I'm choosing to worship. In a world which was governed by patriarchy and it would have been hard for a woman to actually earn 300 days worth of wage to invest and spend on oil, this exorbitant act of love wasn't to earn the approval of the disciples clearly. It wasn't so that people would look at her and be like, oh, wow, she's good enough and she must really love God. It seemed to be this action of deep longing and an expression, like that moment when I see a pair of Nike Air Force Ones online and I just can't wait to get them. It's almost like she can't wait to express this love. James K.S. Smith goes on to say this. Oh, no, I think it might be the next one. No, it's not there. Yeah, so there we go. Yeah, you're back, babe. No, the one after that. While he was a bet, no, that's not the quote. <clears throat> I think I think it's if you go to the one that goes number one. Yeah. Yeah. There we go, and then we go to the next one. Great. Then we we'll go to the next one again. I'm going to the next one again. Great. It's not there, so we'll just keep moving. <laughs> James K. Smith says this: Jesus, Jesus, um, the Jesus actually doesn't long to just reform your life. He actually wants to reorder your loves and desires. He says it way better than that. I'll pass the quote to Paul. But here's a great question. How does the action of our life, the thoughts of our mind, the practices of our day point to the love of our hearts? This is not something we just say for when people are watching. It's something that she would have meditated on, longed to do when no one was around. The second thing that I think we learned, hopefully it's there, is this. Mr. Gamasol. We worship what we value. We worship what we value. There's this moment where the disciples turn around. It'll be on the next screen. There's this, where the disciples turn around, they question her. And they go, whoa, 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 hey, wait here. We could have used this money to feed the poor. There is a difference in value here where the disciples go, hang on, we're not sure Jesus is worth 300 days wage to be spent on here. There's so much more we could do. So what is the disparity that happens in this moment? 
Honestly, it's a great thing for us to question the spending of money and whether or not we could repurpose it for a greater good in the world. But this is when it's helpful to read into John chapter 12 and see a deeper motivation in the disciples. John chapter 12 tells us this is Judas, often understood to be the person who, who held the money. And in fact, the deeper motivation in Judas is this sense that she was threatening and challenging his idol and what he loved the most, that he might have been able to access the money for his own desire. So what does Judas do? Judas puts on a face of moralistic kind of purity. The disciples, even in Mark chapter 14, put on this face of religious piety and go, would it not have been better to do this? And they end up seeming to have the right response, but the wrong heart. Because what they value in this moment isn't Christ. They value looking like they're doing the right thing. They value performance. They're valuing the disciples, this sense of being a good... In fact, we know this narrative throughout the whole Gospels. The disciples are fighting to be the greatest. They're fighting to look like they know what they're doing. They've spent three years with Jesus, and they still seem to miss the point. And then Judas himself in John chapter 12 seems to reveal the true idol of his heart, that this woman threatens, challenges, and actually begins to question what he values. And here's what I've learned to be true about my life. We, we are fast to defend what we truly value with our lives. We're fast to object when what we value is threatened, when there is another opportunity for us to feed the sinful mission of our heart. We jump in. And the beauty about Jesus is that Jesus is never confused about our intentions, our motives, or our character. And so for me, I can justify buying a pair of shoes, or I need them. But at the end of the day, I'm not accountable to Instagram. I'm not accountable to my congregation, although I am. I'm mainly accountable to Christ. And the secret of my heart, he knows what my life is speaking and breathing value into. See, the heart is an idol-making machine. We are idolatrous people. That's the primary cause of the sinfulness of our lives. And idolatry is when we hold anything up with greater value or worth than Christ. In fact, Timothy Keller, uh, one of my favorites, would say idolatry is like this. It'll be on the next slide. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if only I have that, then I'll feel my, my life has meaning, then I know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. This can be anything from kids to a ministry placement to a grade to shoes. And it's not a one-time event questioning the idols of our heart. Even though I took a step back from buying clothes a couple of years ago, that when I finished that year, you know what I did? I went out and bought a whole bunch of clothes again. And God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're reordering your desires, not pausing them. Right? And, and that's so important for us to recognize is that you will always be an idol-making factory and we always have to be fast to be on our knees questioning, God, what has your place in my life? What has your place in my heart? And as a pastor... Moralistic purity or religious observance that looks good to the world is one of the biggest things that we can fall into. Knowing what to say and what to do so we look like we're doing the right thing rather than living out of heartfelt desire and love for Jesus. A guy named Josh McDonald, pastor in America, said this, Michael, if you've grown up in the church and been in the church as long as you have, then you'll know that you're the only one who will know if you're lying or faking or not living the truth. That's the biggest danger that you have in ministry. 
No one's going to come along to you and say, hey, this is more about your religious purity than anything else. Only you can hold that in truth with God. So the question I would ask you, hopefully, is on the next screen, is this. What is absorbing our imagination, our attention, and our hopes today? And I finish with the third thing I think we learned from this, is that we worship what we know. We worship what we know. The disciples had spent three years with Jesus. They'd spent three years learning from him, following him, hearing his rhythms, his teachings. More than anyone, they had heard him speak about dying and being resurrected from the dead. And in this moment, we see the danger of familiarity and head knowledge that hasn't translated to the heart. Because even though they knew about Jesus, they could recite his teachings to you, there was something that hadn't shifted for them in this moment. Because Jesus highlights in the next scripture, let alone, why do you trouble her? And then he indicates that what she's doing is actually prophetically foreshadowing the burial that he is about to experience. Out of them all, this woman wakes up to what's happening in a moment and goes, oh my goodness, out of the love and desire I have for Christ, I worship him in this moment because I think I know what's about to happen next. In John chapter 12, if it is Mary in this moment, it's a beautiful time because he's, she's just seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And so it's this response of saying, wow, Christ has power over life and death and all the other disciples seem to miss the point. You know, the problem with theology is it's danger to actually blind us and maybe even miss God altogether. A guy named J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. And um, one of the, a really, really helpful book, heavily reformed in so many ways. So, you know, read it um, with guidance and, and John and Paul and Simon to help you to guide through that. But he, he kind of questions, okay, do you actually know God or just about him? He says this, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding, is that we true, turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. You know, when I was a young pastor, one of the things I learned how to do is to regurgitate the things I knew really, really well. I learned how to be Christocentric in my preaching. I, I, I kind of learned how to exegete kind of okay. You know, I'm still kind of okay at it. And it, you just worked it out. And ultimately, I worked out how to receive and to give. And so my life just became like this, reading the scripture for Sunday, making sure I knew how to seem like I had a revelation from God every week when people were talking to me just being able to expound scripture and truth. But there is a step that I miss that is so important. It's a step of receiving, waiting, applying, meditating, wrestling, and then, in the right time, giving to others. And the danger of ministry, especially of maybe theological studies, is that we can become so overwhelmed with knowledge, right belief about God. Right belief is so important, so important. But I would suggest that between the disciples and this woman, the disciples probably had more knowledge than she did about Jesus, his teachings, and everything that he did. They probably had more theological capital, acumen. They could probably quote line for line everything that Jesus had said. But only one of them, only this woman, seemed to actually have been able to be effective and transformed by the teachings that she had experienced. Because it wasn't just regurgitated for her. A woman who was elevated to sit at the feet of a man in a time when women weren't allowed to do that, rested the teaching, applied them to her life, allowed them to deeply affect her. So a question you can ask yourself today is, do you know God or just about him? 
And that is never something that you'll get to a level of being like, ding, 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 I've done it. I know God. For me, every day, every week, I'm finding new mystery, new revelation about who he is. And I feel more than ever like an infant in the kiddie pool longing to go deeper. The longer I study, the less I realize I know. And I hope that that's actually your truth as well. That we would be a people who don't just know about him, but that know him. Because there is this moment where Mary, it is Mary or this woman, doesn't miss out on what is about to happen, but gets the sacred truth. And here's what she knows. That Christ isn't just to be worshipped for what he has done, but for who he is. Because in other moments when someone anoints Jesus, usually it's a simple woman responding to the act of Christ's forgiveness. But in this moment, there's no, there's no kind of tale of that. It seems like, Mary, like this woman, her, her, her response is literally in adoration of Jesus Christ himself. It's before the cross. It's before the resurrection. It's before the revealed nature of the gospel. It seems like she's enamored with Jesus, not just in what he has done for her. Friends, there is such a depth of relationship that comes to our relationship with God when we can be enamored with God, not because he died for us, but because he is God. Because he is Jesus, the Son of God. That is, there is a beauty there that maybe causes us to pause and wait. Do you know what he's done for you or do you know him? Do you know him today? And maybe you're like me, you've been doing this for years. And we all need to be reminded, as I was this morning in preparation, hey, God, teach me to know you deeper today. For he is here, he is present, and he is with us right now. So I finish with this question. That's a quote again. What knowledge of God has become lodged more in our head than our heart? What character, nature, truth of Jesus and his gospel is God calling us to meditate on and wait upon today? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just pause just for a moment and all of us, me as well, Father, what, what are you calling us to just meditate on right now? What truth rests more in our head than our heart? I pray that whether we're students, teachers, or just in the room, because we're in the room today, that we would be a people marked by knowledge of God, but knowing you, Jesus, that we would value you because we, we, we know you, but more than that, because we love you. But Jesus, I thank you so much that we will never love you as much as you love us. So teach us not to focus on our love for you, but on your love, which drowns us every day in grace and mercy and goodness. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you that we are alive in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.